Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by members of my Wrong Side Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, or Ready Crew, Floss Agri, and Courtney Brazier-Barrett. Today, we're joined by Natalia Jaramillo. Natalia is the former Deputy Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer and now Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies and Coordinator for the Latin American and Latino Studies program at Kennesaw State University. Nathalia graduated cum laude from the University of California, Riverside, with a BA in psychology. She graduated from Harvard with an MA in international education and policy, and she obtained her PhD in urban schooling from the University of California. She has also worked as an assistant professor for Purdue University, an associate professor for the University of Auckland in New Zealand. She's also published two books and is a sought-after speaker and thought leader on all things related to diversity and inclusion. Welcome, Nathalia. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We're so excited to speak to you today and just hear more about your journey, about your career. Nathalia, from your perspective, why are you seeking out and embracing differences at the individual level? And why is that so important to create an inclusive culture and which employees feel that they are truly engaged and contribute to their own ideas? Sure. Well, I mean, diversity and inclusion go hand in hand. And I think that oftentimes institutions may look around their workforce and see that there isn't much diversity. And so the first effort in that is to diversify the workforce. But once people get there, then what happens? And I've been part of one of those initiatives before. I was considered a diverse hire. And I felt excited to join the institution and I was eager to share my knowledge, my understanding and my experiences. But what I figured out very quickly is that when I got there, no one really asked me about what those experiences were. Mm. It felt that I was I was a checkbox. I was yeah. a box that was just being checked um, as a Latina in a predominantly white environment. To be in that position really I think it denied me the opportunity to feel fully able to speak about my knowledge, to want to contribute to the environment, because I didn't feel welcomed. So when we talk about inclusivity um, in our work environments, it is important to attend to individual differences. Because beyond seeing me as Latina, or perhaps some people didn't even see me as Latina, but you know, being hired as the Latina, what else is there about me that needed to be understood to really allow me to contribute to that work environment? Um, so that's where I think it's crucial that we look beyond our social identifiers and look within the experiences that people bring to the table. I love that. Look beyond the identifiers. I mean, that's that's true of diversity and inclusion, right? I mean, we have to start with the foundation is basic re- mutual respect right. and trying to understand others that are different than ourselves and then also accept, you know, the acceptance piece of it as well. And you can't do that unless you have those, you know, conversations or questions about who you really are. Absolutely. And what was communicated to me in that particular context is that there was not the willingness to want to understand or to demonstrate the kind of profound respect that I think we need for truly inclusive work environments. It felt more as though I needed to assimilate into what already existed. I needed to change my own ways of being or interactions or uh, the contributions that I felt comfortable making to fit in with what was already taking place. And so it's a really, it's a lost opportunity. It was a lost opportunity for me, but it was also a lost opportunity for the institution because all of the ideas and the new knowledge and the conversations and the difficult conversations that could have taken place Mm -hmm. to advance us forward were simply lost. 
I love that. And especially the mask, the mask we have to wear, you know, in the workplace. I think that that's something that's really real for uh, so many of us, you know, that are professionals. You know, we have to be a certain way with certain people and we have to be a certain way with other people. And I think that not being able to be our true identity and not having organizations to understand that, I think that's really powerful. You know, if we could get to the level of consciousness where, we are all able to be who we really are and other people are interested in who we are, you know, as human beings. I think that is where we can say we're truly inclusive and diverse. So thank you for that, Nathalia. That's, that's powerful. Absolutely. So, you know, can you provide an example for our listeners on how one person can experience diversity within their own culture? Like, Mm -hmm. for example, as a Latina woman, because of how you grew up, maybe, or how you were raised, maybe a different perspective on inclusion or preferred engagement style work with their teammate that may be within the same generation, but that may also be Latino. That's a great question. And what I really appreciate about that question is, you know, the understanding that not all Latinas are the same. Yes. (laughs) I'm the daughter of Colombian immigrants. I'm a first generation Latina living in the United States. I had the opportunity to travel to Colombia every year since I was born for about three to four months. Spanish is my native language. Um, I'm used to living between worlds. I also come from a country that was born out of civil conflict, and we were engaged in civil war for 50 plus years. So I have all those different experiences that have generated in me a different sensibility about what it means to be a Latina Mm. who really lives in between and on the borders. Now, that's very different, perhaps, from a Latina who is second or third generation living in the United States. Some originally from California. So there, you know, my Latinaness bumps up with Chicanas and Mexican-Americans and and the unique history that they also share. So for us to engage in a conversation with one another in our work environments oftentimes leads to leads to differences that need to be acknowledged. In my case in particular, I would say that in the earlier stages of my career, I felt very unable to advocate for myself, perhaps, or to, you know, talk about my successes. And that was really a side effect of the traditional family structure that I was born into and the kind of different experiences I had. You know, whereas I had other colleagues who were, you know, from the giddy up, very much more forceful in their speech or not as timid to take a stand. And so all of that leads to different kinds of work styles and leadership styles that we learn about from one another. But I think the most important point to be taken from that is that we can't assume that because a group of people share a racial or ethnic identity, a gendered identity, sexual identity, so on and so forth, that they are going to be the same. Thank you, Natalia. And to even take it a step further, why is it so important that leaders be aware or mindful of the differences, aside from cultural and ethnic differences, that exist amongst members of their team relative to the unique opportunities they bring while learning how to leverage them in the most effective way, specifically one that ensures that performance and output is optimized? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, difference brings its challenges. And so when you do have a diverse team assembled, it's important to understand that 
there, there will be challenges present within that group. Uh, even people who share a racial or ethnic identity are going to be different, as we were just talking about. So in that case, I think it's important for a leader to really model the kind of behavior that and practices, institute the practices that allow for mutual respect to be taking place, for listening to take place, and also for disagreements to be acknowledged. I think that's very critical. I have found myself in so many environments where it's presumed that someone from an individual background will express certain types of characteristics. Um, we need to move beyond that. We need to understand that our individual life histories and our trajectories contribute to a diversity of thought that needs to be welcomed and needs to be understood. And once you have that stage and that foundation set, I think people feel more capable to speak, to enact their voice, to present new ideas, to push the envelope, and to disagree with one another. Uh, when the differences aren't denied, I think there's more opportunity for growth. Wow. Well, Natalia, it's very obvious that you have a passion for diversity. Could you tell us a bit more uh, about a few of your life experiences or events that led you to recognize this as a passion of yours? That's a difficult question to answer, right? Because, you know, my passion for diversity is simultaneously a passion for justice. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, in my most formative experiences as an educator, the, the earliest places of employment that I've had, I've been witness to institutional settings that deny people access to opportunities because they represent diversity. They represent economic diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, so on and so forth. And at a place of my own sense of value, the values that I hold dear, I just don't agree with that way of being. And I don't believe that any institution should have the power to deny anyone an opportunity to realize their full potential and who they are. So for me, it goes back to some of my most formative experiences in educational institutions. And I've also experienced the flip side. So for example, when I did go get my master's at Harvard, it was one of the most incredible experiences because I was part of such a diverse group of individuals. And I had access to a wide range of thinkers, of leaders, of types of information, of forms of knowledge. All of that contributed to such a dynamic experience. And it allowed me to grow as an individual in ways that I wasn't even aware that I was capable of. And so I reflect on that dichotomy, on experiencing really two sides of the coin, of being in a position and part of an institution that I witnessed actively deny people the opportunity to realize their full potential because they represented diversity, as well as the flip side, being part of an institution that embraced and actively pursued and welcomed and created the spaces of inclusivity that allowed me and my colleagues to grow in ways that I think we never imagined we could. Thank you for that, Nathalia. That's very impactful, and I'm glad to hear you say that. What do you think some of the key things that organizations that are focused on being more diverse and inclusive can do to, to truly focus on a two-dimensional versus one-dimensional diverse setting? 
to foster better outcomes. So whereas they're not just looking at what obviously makes us different, but they're also looking at experiences and things like that, other representations of diversity, the differences that lie within us, which you kind of spoke to a little bit earlier. Well, I think that's where we need to move towards, right, is this um, two-dimensional diversity. It's not just about representational diversity, although that is the first step and it's critical and important to the process, but it's also about the kind of diversity that we've acquired through life experiences. Institutions, I think, need to be self-reflective with their leadership. There are many kind of blueprints or best practices out there for how to, you know, generate inclusive leadership practices. And I think they're useful, clearly. You know, the need, you know, what kind of inclusive leadership are you going to promote that allows for different points of view to be spoken at the table? What kind of leadership are you going to have in place that creates an environment where your team members feel able to approach you with a new idea? even if it's going to be challenged or denied, but they still feel that that space exists to promote a new idea, to move the institution forward. What kind of insti- what kind of leadership practices are you putting in place where your team members are provided with actionable feedback so that they know what to do in a timely manner, so to speak? So it's more of a community-based environment as opposed to some of the more hierarchical, hierarchical settings that we have in place. Yet within that... I think those are some of the best practices, but I do think that institutions, this is a process, and you can't assume that change is going to take place overnight. Institutions have their own histories. They have their own structures in place. They have their values and their norms. And I think part of the initial discussion is to really think about how does that history, those values, those structures, and those norms, how do they allow for more inclusivity in something that's already been established. So I really see it as a stage process. I think that, you know, institutions need to evaluate their operating culture and understand the practices, the policies, the structures, the values, the norms that have been in place as part of that institutional framework. And they need to reflect on that and question whether or not that will create a space to generate more inclusive practices. I think that, you know, serious discussions need to be need to take place with the leadership of those institutions to promote those best practices for more inclusive leadership. And I think that realistically, it should, you know, all of these changes should take place over time. And that it should be more of a stage process as opposed to immediately altering an organization from the top down. Because I think at that point, you know, I've been in institutions and as a former deputy chief diversity officer, I worked with institutions who felt the need and the immediate push to diversify, but then they didn't know what to do. And so I really, I think those discussions need to take place beforehand and a plan needs to be put into place for more inclusive leadership and more inclusive practices. Very good point. I think that's important as well, you know, to achieve lasting results, right? So you want it to be phased versus try a quick fix band-aid solution for, for that solution to stick and, and last. My next question, and you've spoken a lot about this already, is really around speaking up. And, you know, what would you say to an individual that they're working in, the, in an organization that's now created a culture that truly celebrates that, but they don't feel comfortable doing so? 
what are some of those tangible steps that you think that that person could probably take to help them find their own voice? That's a challenging question. I've had many colleagues come to me and ask that question. And I think it's a difficult question to answer because, you know, when my colleagues have been in a position where the leadership is not in place to really encourage and allow that voice to be heard, because I think I think individuals, we all come with our voice. And I think we find ourselves in settings that, you know, out of fear or intimidation or what have you, we don't feel capable of practicing and exercising that voice. So for me, it's it's really, it's a two-way street. In those particular situations where I've had colleagues approach me with serious issues about how to approach a topic or advocate for a new idea or what have you, It was a challenging conversation to have when the leadership wasn't in place to allow it to take place. In other situations where you do have the leadership modeling the kind of practices, embracing inclusivity, uh, creating those spaces for other people's voices to be heard, I think it's less likely that you'll find a colleague who is searching for how to exercise their voice. So I think it's it's critical. And what I've seen also that has been very beneficial in various institutions are groups that have formed amongst colleagues who share similar traits, who find a space where they can speak in confidence, where they can express ideas and brainstorm ideas together. So I think all of those practices are useful for people who are entering into an environment where perhaps they're not accustomed to, hey, here your voice can be heard. Now let's create those voice, those spaces where you can liaise with your colleagues to develop your voice. Thank you, Natalia. That is a great segue to our next question. So based on all your studies, your life experiences, what have been some of the most intriguing finds around diversity or different cultures that might be beneficial for organizational leaders to maybe they've achieved diversity, but they're now striving to improve inclusion? You know, what would you offer, you know, as some of the most intriguing information or efforts around that? I have one particular example in mind, and I think I alluded to it earlier, Um, but I think one of the issues perhaps that I'm struggling with this question in particular is the burden should never be placed on other groups to improve diversity. Correct. Right. So I can't necessarily speak to what I have found within other cultural groups or what have you to enhance diversity in a setting where they were made responsible for it. For me, this question really speaks to, again, I I keep going back to inclusive leadership. I think that leadership is imperative and is critical in addressing all of these questions that we're talking about today. For example, I was working with an institution, brought in a group of folks to enhance diversity in the institution, and they tried to create an inclusive environment by putting together some reading groups on diverse texts, those sorts of things. But the people who were brought in didn't want to participate in those groups because, again, they were put in the position of teacher. So for me, it's, it's really about understanding that the onus is on leadership, that the openness and the perspective and the willingness to, to grow and learn is on leadership. I work in education, and for me, working in a formal diversity role was not that different from being an educator. And I think that diversity leaders within institutions 
actually need to see themselves that way. Because you do need to actually set yourself aside for a moment, you know, survey the field around you, recognize and learn about the differences that surround the table, and generate those practices that allow for change to then take place. I love that. You know, at Ronstadt, we're the only major staffing firm that has a chief diversity inclusion officer. So we're kind of trailblazing in that regard. And I'm very proud of the work my team has been doing and proud of our leadership team for supporting it. Mm -hmm. But I I get that, you know, being in, you know, you may have a mandate around diversity, but then the culture doesn't shift. You know, you don't have the shift that comes with the mandate. So I think that's really, that's almost like, it's almost like climbing uphill, carrying a boulder on your back because the diverse populations then are trying to come in, make it better, make the culture better so that people behind them can feel like they're included and welcomed in the organization as well. Right. I've been asked so many times, I've visited universities all across the country, and they've asked me, how would you improve diversity here? How would you make us a more inclusive environment? And I let them know I don't have the answers for that question because there are a lot of voices that need to be around the table to figure that out. So it's... It's about, you know, who you have around you. As we've been talking, you know, what are those unique differences that people bring? What are the different experiences that people bring to the table? And as an institutional culture, that is where you begin. So speaking of unique differences, so what would you say in your own words, what does it mean to embrace another's u- uniqueness as a leader? If I was, if a leader, if you're having a conversation with another leader and you want them to embrace, you know, not just recognize and, ex- you know, accept it, but embrace it, you know, how would, what would you, how would you say that? How would you, you know, help that leader to do that or give them some tips on that? I think simply by asking, uh, you ask the individual about who they are and where they've come from. If you have a concern about a practice in your institution, ask your folks if they are identifying the same concern. You seek feedback. You know, to be a leader is to be a listener. There's a beautiful author who I read many, many years ago and who I continue to reread and reread. But what he said was, you know, leaders don't identify themselves. They're identified by the people around them. And I think it takes that kind of humility to really embrace and embody inclusive leadership where, you know, you have a listening ear, you're willing to ask questions, you're willing to be challenged, you're willing to see people's strengths across difference, and you're willing to create opportunities where people can maximize on those strengths and grow in ways that they need to grow. I love that. Maximizing your strengths. I love that. That's that's exactly, I think I have a saying on my team is, you know, I just want everybody to own their jobs. You know, when you own your job and you, that makes me a better leader because I can help you with the development piece. I can help you with the other pieces. But the first part of it is just own what you're been hired, what you've been hired to do. So right. I think that's one way that leaders can help their teams as well as that accountability piece, you that's know, right. of that. So what actions do you think we can take each of us every day to help celebrate and embrace in our day-to-day interaction with our colleagues, the uniqueness of others, you know, just day-to-day, if you're going in and, you know, maybe you don't, you're walking by Tom's desk, you say hello and good morning and that's it. But, you know, how can you, I mean, if we're all got our head to the grindstone, we're working in our little um, islands or little silos, you know, what can we do to kind of get that uniqueness in our day-to-day interactions, you know, get down to that? Sure. Well, I think there's, we have so many examples of institutions and 
businesses and so on and so forth who carve out time for social interaction. I love that. And that's really necessary. I recall one of my supervisors who wrote extensively on happiness. And he talked about how necessary it was to make time every day in the office for a social interaction that allowed people to express what they enjoyed over the weekend, something that's enjoyable in their day today, or or what have you. So I think it's really about forging those spaces, creating those spaces where social interaction can take place, where people can get to know each other on a deeper level. We used to do all kinds of things in our office, ending a meeting with just one word about how you would characterize the last week of work. You know, and the people were open. I found it exhausting. I found it tiring, or what have you. you know, but we got to understand where people were at better. And we also got to understand what had been going on in their lives, perhaps, mm-hmm. that we hadn't seen. And I think that kind of interaction and talking to one another really allows us to get to know what's going on, what's uniquely going on in all of our lives. I really appreciate that, Nathalia, because we're we're in such a digital world today. You know, everything is electronic, everything is video. It's hard to have those real connections anymore. I find myself having to even talking to my own children, having to pause because I'm like, what oh wait, what are you saying? You know, just to kind of get to make like let me make eye contact, let them know that you are important to me and I and what you're saying is important. So I, I really am trying to do be more mindful as a leader, as a mother, as a you know, as a team member about that interaction, being focused on that moment and present and engaged. And that's really something I'm really actively trying to work at because right. we're all getting pulled in a million different directions. We right. all have many things that are, you know, are vying for our attention every right. single day. Right. There's always some fire. we got to go firefight over here. Right. There's always a client over there. We've got to go make sure that they are well taken care of. Right. So, I, But I think that we can be mindful in that intention of connecting with one another. another that's very powerful. Absolutely. I think that makes us all better you know, from our society as well as employees of our organizations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we just don't make time, like you're saying. Yeah. You know, and so when you when you do mark that as one of your priorities within the kind of culture that you're trying to cultivate in your workplace, mm. then you do make the time. And yeah. it is intentional. And people recognize that. And once people recognize that, it's just amazing the, the way that things can flow after that. I mean, I'll tell you, I've learned so much, you know, about my own leadership style and my own leadership practices because there was a day where I literally did have some blinders on because I wanted to get so much accomplished or I felt that things were so high stakes. You know, working in diversity and how I feel about it, I just wanted everyone to be on the same page, to be, you know, going 100 miles per hour, achieving those objectives. This is how we're going to be the best diversity enterprise that's ever existed. I I created, and I acknowledge this, I, I think I did create a very high stakes environment that was stressful. And I needed to learn and I needed to step back and recognize that, you know, people weren't feeling welcomed in that environment. And I had a role to play in that, even with all the experiences I've had and, you know, all the, all the training I've had and, and all the advocacy I've done, um, we all need to be self-reflective at, you know, various stages in our professional work and our 
personal lives, so on and so forth. And that was really a point for me where I needed to, you know, understand, hey, make these opportunities, make this time for people to express who they are beyond this work that I feel so committed and passionate about. I love that. It's, it's almost like putting out positive intention right. around it and making sure that we're wrapping it around, you know, caring, we're caring about the work we do. We're really being thoughtful and mindful of it. So I like that. Mm-hmm. So one last question, Athalia. Can you give a few examples of things that employees at the individual contributor level can do to impact and change the way that leads to a culture that feels more diverse and inclusive? So if, you know, Jane is working here, she's not in a leadership role, what could, what could that person do that make an impact, you know, themselves? I think that, you know, I recall another, a smaller organization that approached me. Actually, the employees of that organization approached me. And they said, you know, I, we have some issues going on in our institution. We would like, you know, you to talk with us and perhaps talk with our leadership about different things that we can do, right? But they took the initiative of... A, they identified whatever had been taking place within that institutional setting. B, they thought, well, we just can't go along with the way things are because we see ourselves being unhappy, we see others being unhappy. Um, And C, they sought out those places where they could speak freely and seek out resources to improve the institutional environment. So I think that we all have a responsibility to contribute to a more inclusive culture in the places that we work. And to do that, you know, I think Jane, uh, Jane can embody those same practices that we've been talking about in terms of leadership, asking people, you know, about who they are, seeing something, saying something, not being discouraged uh, to, you know, be an advocate and to speak out. And, you know, having the willingness to want to contribute to a better work environment. And that's what I've seen from a lot of people. They might not have the tools or the skill sets to, you know, rectify biases that they're observing in the workplace. But something is unsettling and they kind of know it's just not right. Um, So they seek out those resources to improve it. And those are the kind of experiences that I've had where, you know, every employee around the table is engaged intentionally and in a meaningful way to improve the culture of their environments. Yeah, we've got several things at Ronside we're really proud about our team's doing. We have what call ready chats where we create safe spaces mm-hmm. for people to come and tell us, you know, what else can we, our diversity, meaning our diversity team do and take that back to our senior, most senior leaders in our organization mm-hmm. to improve. And then we also just kicked off this year the Ready Ambassador Program. So mm-hmm. we're trying to build a, a, a slew of people that, you know, in their everyday life is modeling inclusion. Mm-hmm. And what can they each do something? If they do one thing each, then how much better what our organization be. Right. So right. I'd love that, you know, that that ambassadorship, that, you know, going out and being the example, you know, and you can do that through moral courage, like you said, the people mm-hmm. that approached you. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. So thank you so much, Nathalia. This has been very deep and enriching conversation. I love this, you know, topic oh, and you. the way in your perspective. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you also from my Ready crew, Floss and Courtney. We really love this. It's been very powerful to have and a gift to have Nathalia here as well. And big thank you to our listeners. We certainly appreciate your support. This is the real reason why we do this, to have these deep conversations. And we hope that you're finding it as impactful and powerful as we are. 
Real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged and working together for a positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Until next time, go out and make a positive difference in your organization or community. Thank you.